Good evening. Um, I want to say something before we get into the study tonight. Just share it with you all because it's on my heart. Uh, on occasion, we get phone calls. Uh, Sharon will, kind of in an administrative assistant role. And people will ask her, hi Tracy. <laughs> people will ask her, they'll say, What does the church do about this? Or what does the church do to take care of that? And every time Sharon will, you know, she'll call over to my office and say, which is funny because she lives right next door, but she'll call me or she'll email me. And she'll say, yeah, what does the church do about this or that or the other? And the the same phrase always pops into my mind. And that's, that's be the church. And what I mean by that is we have kind of an American... Christianity and American religion, we have this sense that there's this entity over here called the church. And the church takes care of that. Or, or the church meets this need. The church. It's like this thing, you know. We're the church. It's us. And so when someone says, hey, what does the church do about providing transportation when someone needs a ride to the hospital? My answer is, Give them a ride. Be the church. And it's, it's, I guess maybe a pet peeve of mine because I've been involved in church ministry for so many years that we begin, we get to this place as churches grow of being about asking the church to do something for me or for other people and not recognizing that it's us. We're the church. If there's a need and you see it, fill it. Don't call me. Because, frankly, I really don't want to serve you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I heard, uh, is it Tim Hawkins? Is that his name? Christian comedian. Oh, he is so funny. And he, he was talking about how we have these Christian catchphrases, things that we say, like servant hearts. you got such a servant heart. What it means is we need you to stack chairs. You know. So instead of saying you've got a servant heart, let's just say, hey, we need you to stack chairs. The bottom line is this. I think the most successful and effective churches in the world are the churches where the people realize that they are the church and where it's just the church being the church. As opposed to letting some vague sense of an organization, like like there's a hub of people that meet over here and they're the church and they take care of all of our needs. No, it's us. And so, be the church. Just, Just be the church. You don't need a gathering. You don't need a committee. You don't even need a team of people to be the church. The church, being the church, is just loving and serving each other and filling the needs when we see them. I just wanted to pass that along. It has a little bit of what to do with what we're talking about tonight, but um, more just something on my heart to share with you all that I think God is calling us just to be the church. And I, I like the sound of that, so let's, let's do that. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now my goal is to move through 2 Kings without missing anything by the end of the summer. Which is why last week we went as long as we did. And a couple weeks before that we went even longer. I'm not planning on going super duper long tonight. But I would like to cover, cover a couple of chapters. And part of the reason why I want to complete 2 Kings by the end of the summer is I'd like to hit the fall, and as I've mentioned before, we're going to start the book of Matthew. We're actually going to jump ahead, do one of the Gospels, and then we'll come back and continue on through the, uh, through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. But I think it's time, you know, we're coming up on five years October for the bridge, and I think it's time maybe to do a Gospel. 
So we'll do that. But I would like to move through 2 Kings. And there's, there's so much here. It's, it's really difficult for me because I sat down planning on doing 2 Kings 5, 6, and 7. And I ended up uh, getting as far as 6. So we'll, we'll do that tonight. Verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman, captain of the, har- of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram, which, by the way, is also Syria. You can, Syria kind of grew out of both the Arameans and the Assyrians. It's kind of questionable as to which one, but when you see Aram or the Arameans, it's, it's the region of Syria today. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Father, as we open your word tonight, we ask that you will illuminate our hearts and minds and give us insight, Father, and help us to see the the nuggets and the truths and the treasures that are to be found here. Father, I, I pray that you will continue to excite us about your word. And fill us, Lord, with your word. Whether it's the passage, the text that we're studying through tonight, or or maybe a, a scripture that comes in from the side, Lord, I just pray that we would be rejuvenated. And we would be carriers of your word into this world. Carriers of truth, Father. I pray you'd bless this desire. It's, it's a desire you put in my heart and the hearts of so many as we as we started this, this fellowship. Father, I pray that you would carry it out, that your word would not come back to you empty, but would be successful in everything that you choose for it to be successful in. And Father, tonight, bless our study, but beyond that, Lord, I ask that you would take us a step further, further than study, into the place of changed hearts. Father, into the place of compassion, and into the place of recognizing why you have us in this world. Help us, Father, to learn what that means to be the church. To just be the church, being the church. And the way we treat each other, if it's in this barn, even on a Wednesday night, the way we care about each other's needs, the way we respond when we hear that there are situations, things going on. Father, I pray that nobody would wait for a pastor to go to the hospital, but if they hear someone's in the hospital, they go. Just because we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. I pray, Father, that small groups would take care of small groups and and friends and family would just be taking care of each other to the point where, oh, Father, where even the the staff seems at times obsolete. We would just be the church being the church. Father, as we study through your word, I pray for insight into how to do this and a deeper response on our part. May we be, Father, doers of the word and not hearers only. And Holy Spirit, teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 1, we meet a man named Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram. And as we continue on here in the life and the ministry of Elisha, and remember we've talked about Elisha's a very personal prophet. He likes to work one-on-one with people. Most of the miracles, and there are many of them, that he accomplishes or the Lord accomplishes through him are individual miracles. Miracles meant for and dealing with just one person. There's not a whole lot of flash. You're not going to see Elijah on, or Elisha on TV. But you will notice Elisha in the background, off in the corners, ministering one person to another. And as we continue on, I want to point out something that's easy to forget, especially as we study the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's that the, glor- the, the Lord always has a global compassion. From the very beginning, God has had a global 
compassion. What do you mean by that? I mean, we see here in verse 1, the Lord at work, outside of Israel. Now, as we study the Hebrew Scriptures, it is the story of God working through and with and in Israel. But it's easy to forget that this is not the complete history. This is the history God wanted to give us in the revelation of Himself. Ultimately through the person of Jesus Christ. But as we study through the Hebrew Scriptures, it is not just an Israel story. There are hints and clues throughout that God has His hand at work in the world around us. Look at verse 1 again. It says, By Him, that is by Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Well, wait a minute. Aram is an enemy of Israel. Yes, it is. Aram are not, the Arameans are not the chosen people. No, they're not. But the Lord has given victory to them. He is working through this man who's not even a Jew. Because God has a global compassion. The Old Testament scriptures may tell the story of the Lord primarily through Israel, but His compassion has always been worldwide. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, all the way back to the very roots of Israel with the man named Abram, where God said to him in verse 3 of Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed, not just your offspring, all the families of the earth. Later, he called Israel to be a light to the nations. We use that in the church. Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, A city set on a hill is not to be hidden. You're a light to the world. Well, we embrace that. We say, oh, that's that's the church, right? No, it was Israel. And I think you can even make a case for the fact that in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is still talking to Israel when he says that. Remember, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek scriptures tell us. And so we see in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. He's talking to Israel. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out, bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And indeed, through Israel, via the tribe of Judah, the Lord brought light to the nations in the person of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. But by the time of Jesus' public ministry, the Jewish people had all but forgotten this global commission that God had given to them. Jesus appeared on the scene, and as we saw a few weeks ago as we were looking in kind of the introduction of Elijah and his miracle with the widow of Zarephath, We also see now a miracle with Naaman the Syrian and Jesus picks these two miracles to illuminate his mission on earth. He says the following, Luke 4.25 I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile. Jesus then said in verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, or the Aramean. How did the people react to that? The very next verse tells us in Luke chapter 4, they were enraged. They were so absolutely furious, they were whipped up into a furor. They pushed Jesus out to the edge of Nazareth. They tried to push him off what today is called Mount Precipice, Thankfully, because it's Jesus just walked right through him. Some believe it was a miraculous walking right through him. He just kind of dissipated and floated through them. I don't think so. I think he just gave him a good stern looking. 
you going to push me off the hill? I don't think so. I think they backed off and Jesus went on his way. How dare Jesus bring up these two exceptions? These two miracles to Gentiles. There are so many great miracles done for the Jewish people and for a Jewish man who is ultimately Messiah to come onto the scene and start talking about Gentiles. It just doesn't ring right. At least not for the people of his hometown of Nazareth. They were so upset that he chose Gentiles to exemplify the compassion of their God. But here's the thing. Jesus made it clear from the very beginning his mission was global. It was through Israel. He wanted to embrace, draw in, and use Israel to be the light to the nations. But it was not just for Israel. It was, as we all know, and that's why we're here tonight, it was for all of us. A global compassion. Do you ever look at the world going to hell in a handbasket and think to yourself, Lord, I'm just done with this place. I've had it with these people. I'm tired of the media. I can't even pick a good movie at Blockbuster. I'm just done. I'm ready to go home, Lord. I'm tired of the bickering I see and the lies and the gossip and the filth and the sin. I'm just sick of it. Lord, come take your church home. And I've done quite a bit of teaching lately about discernment in these last days. But with this verse and this story, God caught me off guard a little bit this week, spun me around, tapped me on the shoulder, and reminded me that sound biblical doctrine and unconditional global compassion are not two separate things. They're not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, sound biblical doctrine calls me to care about this world. It calls me to love. It calls me to the same thing Jesus tried to call the Jewish people to, the same thing God wanted to call them to all the way back with Abraham and then up through Isaiah and on to the coming of Jesus, and that is a compassion for the world around us, to truly be a light in the world. And that's not always easy to do. It's easier sometimes just to stand on sound doctrine, point the finger and say, they're all sinners, discerning the wickedness around us. And, and we have to do that. We have to discern evil. We have to keep our eyes open, especially as it attempts to creep into the church. We know the Bible talks about a falling away, the last day's apostasy. But in the same time, we have to learn to stand on truth and reach out a hand of love and compassion. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus is writing a letter to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus means darling one or sweetheart. It's a term of endearment, Ephesus is. And Jesus wrote this letter and he said, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And I read that and I say, yes, Lord. <laughs> that sounds great. I like being persevering and and keeping watch. I like discernment. But he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. You know what the lampstand is a picture of there? The church. Now, I take that very personally. If we are in a church that's loving, the Lord may just as soon come and remove this lampstand on North Whidbey Island. It's great that you're discerning, but if you're not loving as well, if you're not showing as much love as you show discernment, 
Guess what? You're out of whack and you will not represent me in the world the way I choose to be represented. And that's as a father who forgives. As a gracious Savior who is calling people to salvation. We have a global commission with a global compassion. We have a calling to the Zidonians and the Syrians around us, to the widows of Zarephath and to the Naamans of Aram. We are called to the outsider. We are called to the unloved. We are called to the sinner whose attitude and behavior and language offend me. I'm called to love that person and not to judge. Matthew 28.18 Jesus said all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We had five baptisms on Sunday morning. It was great. It's a wonderful time to see people giving their lives over to Jesus and then expressing it in those waters. And he said teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and lo I'm with you always even to the very end of the age. So we are called to the Naaman. So let's look at Naaman. He's a Syrian, he's a captain, he's a highly respected man, and he's a leper. Verse 2 says, Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Does it bother you that this Naaman, who turns out to be a pretty good guy in Scripture, has a slave girl that he captured from Israel. I read that and it, it, it bothered me because I remember just recently, in fact it was last year in the Lebanon War, it's what kind of kicked off that war, when two IDF soldiers were kidnapped and taken. Right now they're, they're trying to get them back and the chances are what they're going to get back is going to be their bodies. And so I read this and I thought, oh, I don't like that. This little girl's been taken captive And yet, this little girl is as impressive as Esther in what she does. Little girl here is Katan Na'ara. We said on Sunday, Na'ara, Na'ara, it was translated little child or or young lad, actually has more to do probably with a late teenager. And so this little girl may in reality be 13, 14, 15 years old, 17 years old. She's old enough to know what's going on in Samaria. She's old enough to be aware of the prophetic ministry of Elisha. And this little girl, this little girl suggests to her mistress, where Naaman, my master, should be, is in the hands of the prophet in Samaria. Why would she say that? Because he could heal him. That's interesting to me. As a captive, she could have been bitter and brooding and blaming the Lord. How can I get stuck in this place? I've been drawn away from my people. Lord, why would you do this to me? Instead, she's used by the Lord to bring healing to a heathen. Do you feel like a captive? Maybe stuck in a job that you just can't stand. And every morning when you got to get up and go there, Lord, why am I in this place? Maybe you feel trapped in your marriage. And in the morning when you wake up and look over at the person there, 
the first word that pops into your mind may be heathen I don't know I hope not (laughs) or maybe you feel confined by your age I can't do what I used to be able to do or your financial position I'd love to be able to help but that's just not where I'm at or your physical condition I just can't be involved the way other people can do you feel like a captive in some place in your life well I ask you this question if you do is it possible the Lord may actually have put you there And the reason you're there, like this little girl, is to offer healing to the heathen. Healing to those around us who are watching, who are paying attention. The world, gang, is listening. The world knows if you've chosen to follow Jesus. The world knows if you've put on Christ. And they're watching, and they're paying attention, and they're listening. What do you think yields a better outcome in the ears of the world? The drone of discontent or the delight of a disciple? Because you see, when people see you in a difficult place, be it a marriage, a job, some station in life, and they see you praising the Lord anyway, that testimony is huge. So we've said in here before, it is easy to praise the Lord during worship time, in here in the barn. Anybody can do that. Try praising the Lord in the prison in Philippi with your feet in the stocks along with Paul and Silas. See how tough that is. Acts 16.25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And listen to this, the prisoners were listening to them. They were having a witness and they weren't even intending to. They're sitting there, feet locked up, and Paul looks at Silas and goes, Let's sing Christ Jesus. Okay, great. And they start singing. Away they go. And I'm sure they sang it right. I'm sure they got the melody right. And and John, you did. You nailed it. Right before we started, I came in here and John, hey, let's run through Christ Jesus, okay? And you start singing it. About halfway through the first verse, I go, no, no, that's that's not the right melody. So I made him change the melody before we started, and he got it. So good job, John. Way to go. Anyway, they're in there singing, but the point is this. The two of these men were worshiping to worship. They weren't worshiping for any other reason. They just happened to be captives, worshiping to worship, and the prisoners were listening to them. And so was Naaman's wife. She was listening to the little girl. So word gets from her, now to Naaman, you know what, we captured her from Israel, but she says there's a prophet who can do amazing things. And maybe we need to get a hold of them. Maybe there is truly a cure for your leprosy. Now you might find it odd that a captain in an army has leprosy. Well, it wasn't until the Lord came along that leprosy was prescribed as something that you needed to keep away from the people in the camp. God said medically, that's just a good thing. In most of the pagan nations, they had no idea about the kind of medical cleanliness that God offered Israel in the law. And so you could have leprosy and be involved in the army and other people would get it. I mean, it got passed around. And so here's Naaman, and in verse 4 it says, He went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Well, then the king of Aram said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. You see, Naaman was important. And the king of Aram had an affinity for this guy. At least he trusted him as his captain. He wanted to see him healed. We know that because it says, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver. That's 750 pounds of silver. And 6,000 shekels of gold. That'd be 150 pounds of gold. And ten changes of clothes. And he brought a letter to the king of Israel saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I've sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. 
when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? This is Jehoram, great king Jehoram. Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. This guy has no faith. He doesn't even think about, maybe I should call Elisha. He just thinks that the king of Aram is trying to cause a scuffle. Well, it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? (laughs) If it was me, I would have said, Why are you such a moron? (laughs) Now let him come to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be cleaned. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Remember, Elijah was the public prophet. Elisha is the private prophet. And Naaman comes with an expectation. And today, the problem of grandstanding healing ministries in the world around us, the problem is that people start to think that's how it's supposed to be. A grandiose thing. You've got to be lined up on a stage with TV cameras everywhere and have someone knock you over. That's how you get healed. It's got to be well produced and seen by everyone. It's got to have a big bang, you know. And that's what Naaman expected. I want the prophet to come out and make a big deal out of this. And wave his hands and call on his God and have this big healing. I've got my horses, my chariots, my men. He expected something big. Not a private bath in the Jordan. People get attracted to the showmanship instead of to the Savior. It's just not about the showmanship. Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And this is one of the things I just love about Elisha. He just says, Go wash. He doesn't even come to the door. He sends his servant to the door to tell Naaman to go and wash. Why? Because it's not about Elisha. His ministry, the whole thing, it's just not about him. It's about God who saves. God is my salvation. Verse 12. Naaman's still ranting now, and he's furious. He says, Are not Arbana and Farpar? It's not Farquhar, it's Farpar. If you've seen Shrek, you know what I'm talking about. The rivers of Damascus, aren't these better than all the waters of Israel? And indeed, the rivers in Damascus were nicer rivers than the Jordan. Jordan's kind of a muddy dark river it says aren't these rivers better than the waters of Israel could I not wash in them and be clean so he turned and went away in a rage then his servants came near and spoke to him and said my father had the prophet told you to do some great thing would you not have done it and see they're on to him how much more then when he says to you wash and be clean so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Now something about Naaman I think we can see in this short story. He needed healing from leprosy, true. But he had another problem. He had a sin that like leprosy and leprosy is often a picture of sin in the Bible but it starts small and it spreads quickly And this particular sin in the life of Naaman is pride. 
He's a great captain. His king thinks so highly of him that he would send hundreds of pounds of gold and silver to get him healed. He has his chariots. He has his army. He is well respected in his country. He's got it going on. Yeah, he's got leprosy. Sneezed the other day and off went his nose. I don't know. But, but he's a proud man. He's a proud guy. By the way, the definition of pride, I heard this just the other day, is excessive self-esteem. My mother was right. I'm a good guy. You know? Pride is the difference between what you think you are and what you truly are. Proverbs 16.18 tells us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29.23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. And James 4.6, and listen to this, James writes, He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Whenever you see a therefore in Scripture, remember you have to go back and see what it's there for. He says he gives a greater grace. That's why God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why is God opposed to the proud? Because he gives a greater grace. Does that make sense? Because God is a giver of grace, he is opposed to the proud. Why? Because the proud don't think they need grace. They think they can do it on their own. I'm I'm a good guy. I've got my behavior down. I take care of people around me. I'm a philanthropist. I care. I'm good. What do I need grace for you? You see, pride counteracts salvation. And the more prideful I am, the less I need the Lord who gives a greater grace. Naaman was a great man, but he's still a leper. He's still unclean. And there are lots of great people out there doing great things who in reality are lepers. They're hard to save because they think they're so great while their flesh is falling off. What do you need God for? I'm good. Naaman wanted the red carpet and instead he got the royal snub. He wanted the prophet to wave his hands. He wanted the big show. Instead, Elisha doesn't even come out to see him but has his servant Naaman say, go wash in the dirty little river seven times. But why does he do that? Well, partially because it's hard to receive God's grace when I'm deceived by my greatness. Naaman needed to be brought down a bit. He didn't need a face-to-face with the prophet. He didn't need a big to-do around him that everybody could see. He needed to go to the Jordan and take seven baths. Seven times. Gets in the water, washes off, gets out, dries off. Gets in the water, washes it Seven times. Why? Well, you know seven is the number of completeness in the Bible, but here's something interesting. The Jordan River, literally the Jordan means descender or one who comes down. And what Naaman needed to do was be completely washed by the one who comes down. The descender. It's what we need. It's how we are cleansed of our leprosy of sin is that we wash completely in the one who comes down, who is Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And by the way, did you catch how the word describes Naaman after his washing? Look at the last verse there, verse 14. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Didn't Jesus say you've got to become like a little child? If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? We have full circle a picture here of a Gentile outsider who finds salvation. Not just physical healing, but salvation. 
That's our global commission with a global compassion to see people come to Jesus cleansed of their sin and entering into a childlike faith. We'll read on. Verse 15 then says, When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, see now Elisha will come out and meet with him, he said, Behold now, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. See, had Elisha, I'm absolutely convinced of it, had Elisha come out and done the big show, the Naaman would have gone back to Syria saying, now there's a prophet that I know we can trust. He's a great man. But because of the way Elisha handled it, he came back and said, there is a great God in Israel. Because he didn't make it about himself. And so he's excited. He's, he's a man of faith now. And he says, here, let me give you something for your, for your service. Let me give you a present. And Elisha said, verse 16, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him, to take it but he refused Naaman said well if not please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth I want to pack in some dirt here for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord what does that mean? pagan theology pack up dirt if you know a god is from a different country the only way you can worship that god is to build an altar on the dirt from that country so you've got to pack up the dirt take it back to Syria and they can pour out the dirt and you can put an altar on the dirt and then the god from Israel will accept your offerings on his own dirt theologically it's precarious okay but emotionally it's precious because this guy is so excited now he wants to worship god he doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't have it right. Not yet. Just, just like a new believer in Christ. Have you noticed that? People will come to Christ and they'll be so excited and they'll have so many different ways they want to worship and praise and, and, and they need some instruction and some guidance along the way. No, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do this. It's, it's okay. But his heart is completely captured at this point by the Lord. Verse 18 tells us, In this matter, Naaman still speaking, May the Lord pardon your servant. By the way, remember, he's saying the Lord, he's saying Yahweh, he's calling God by name here. He knows the name of the true God. He says, when my master goes into the house of Rimon, which is the god of the Aramaeans, to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. See, I've got to go back to Paganville and go into the Paganville temple with my king and he's you know I'm, I'm his right hand guy and so when I kneel down there in front of this pagan idol is that okay I won't worship but I kind of have to because of my job what would you say to him sorry dude <laughs> you're a new believer now and we got some rules let's list them out for you you can't do you can't do you can't do you can't do and be sure you don't do but what does Elisha say He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Naaman's a new believer. He's a babe in belief. He's like a child, but without the mileage or the track record of Elisha. And so there's a wonderful grace in Elisha's response. And and it's unexpected. He doesn't give Naaman a thoughtless okie-dokie. He doesn't say, okay, that's all right. Don't worry about it. Worship away. You know, no big deal. But... He doesn't dump the law on Naaman's shoulders either. He doesn't hand him a copy of Torah. 
need you to memorize this, buddy, and then come back and see me since you've gotten through it all, and we'll talk about how you're going to implement this in your life. So the reality is, Naaman was not under the law, not being of Israel. But he is a newbie. And I point this out to say, never exchange the old weight of sin for the new weight of law when you see someone come to Christ. Someone gets free of all oh, the sin that, that, that sits so heavy on them. And we can turn right around, and without that global compassion I was talking about, we can turn right around and start dumping rules and regulations on them that they're not ready for yet. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Dan and I were talking. I'm going to use you as an example, Dan. I'm sorry. I hope this is okay. should have asked you ahead of time. I'm not. I'm just going to do it anyway. We were talking just this last week, last Wednesday night, about a conversation he was having with some friends. And, and Dan said, I'm born again. And Serene goes, what does that mean? And Dan said, well, it means I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I keep the Ten Commandments. And when you said that, my first thought was, no. The first part, right. The second part, no. And Dan kind of looked at me like, are you serious? And I had to go away and think about that because I have taught in this place the benefits of the keeping of the commandments. I believe in the benefits of keeping the Ten Commandments. But it's not a requirement. It's not Jesus and. It's Jesus only. And being born again means that I am born into Christ anew. And Paul went so far as to say, you know, everything's lawful. I'm under grace. I am no longer under law. I'm not... Under the weight of this stuff. Well then Rick, why do you preach about that stuff? And why do we have to keep rules? And why do we have to do these things and pursue righteousness? Because I've already been saved. And I've discovered in my life that now pursuing the Lord in these things, that the law of the Lord is perfect, as Psalm 19 tells us. And so I I love to pursue the things of God and the things that I know God says are good for me. I want to do those things, but not because they saved me. As a 30-year believer in Christ Jesus... I accept the value of the Old Testament in my life, but I would never shoulder a new believer with that. I would never say, give your life to Christ and go memorize the top ten list. Because it's putting law and weight right back on the shoulders of a new believer. And Elisha won't do it. And I love that. He doesn't tell anything to Naaman, but just go in peace. And so Naaman is now free to go back and do in Aram what he needed to do in the first place, and that's proclaim the healing power and virtue of Yahweh, the God of Israel, not preach the law of the Jews. Just go back to your people and tell them what God did for you. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 7, he says, Accept one another, just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to their fathers and he's become a servant for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name and that's what Naaman needed to do just go home and sing about God and don't worry about the rest there will be time enough for building up Naaman's faith in maturity sometimes and I am guilty of this I want to see someone become mature now 
now. Hey, you've given your life to Christ. Get out the Let's go. Time to be mature. It's a process. I thank the Lord that I've had years and years and years to grow. And that I have years and years and years to go. I appreciate that about my Father. He is patient and He will teach me. Sometimes I don't think we give the Holy Spirit enough credit. But now the header for the next section in your Bibles, if you have a New American Standard Bible, is Gehazi's Greed. But there's more than greed going on here. Watch this. Verse 20. Verse 20. But when Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. And so Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from his chariot to meet him and said, is, is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me. Why? Saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of gold, or, or clothes. Naaman said, Oh, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. Well, when he, this is Gehazi, the servant, came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house and he sent them in away and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. See, he hid the stuff, thinking he could get away with this. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Nowhere. What? Who? What? Your servant has been nowhere. And then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Well, he didn't receive all those things. But I have a feeling Elisha knew that was in Gehazi's heart to go buy all those things with the silver that he had just ripped off from this new believer Naaman. Therefore, Elisha continued, verse 27, The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And so he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Some commentators have compared Gehazi to Judas Iscariot, and rightly so, because he betrays his master for some pieces of silver. What do you mean he betrays his master? It was a denial of the ministry of Elisha and a misrepresentation of Yahweh and worse yet, to a new believer. Here's a guy new in his faith, excited in his faith and along comes Gehazi and rips him off and steals from him. And as with Judas, there are telltale signs of this betrayal long before it occurred. I'll give you three. The first one is that Gehazi was lacking in compassion. This is not a compassionate guy. This is not a young man who has any understanding of the global compassion of the Lord God. Remember back when the Shunammite woman's son had died? A couple chapters back we studied this and, and she ran to Elisha for help. Notice what Gehazi did. Chapter 4 verse 27 tells us when she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. She is so upset. Her son is now dead. And Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is troubled within her. That word to push her away, gang, it's hadak, and it means to thrust or shove. 
she comes and falls at his feet. And here comes Gehazi. He says, get out of here. What are you doing? That's not appropriate behavior. And he has no compassion for what's going on. For her broken heart. For where she is coming from. In the same way, Judas Iscariot lacked compassion toward another woman in a deeply intimate moment. If you turn over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 1. We see Judas in a strikingly similar situation. John 12.1 tells us Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, as usual. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Awkward. Put yourself in the situation. Mary has just laid it all all out on the line in appreciation. I think she's appreciating Jesus and showing love and affection toward him for healing and resurrecting her brother Lazarus from the dead. And she takes this expensive perfume. This this stuff, this, this nard gang is only from herbs found in North India. Extremely expensive. And what she pours on his feet is the equivalent of a pound of this stuff. And this moment is tender. She's wiping his feet with her hair. And the smell is filling the room. And Judas blurts out, What a stupid thing to do. This should have been sold and given to the poor. You know, via the money bag that I carry. Unbelievable. No compassion whatsoever. Why does he create this awkward situation? It says in verse 6, He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. And therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And indeed I believe Mary would use the remainder of this nard to anoint the body of Jesus. He says, For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Judas had one concern. Judas. He was in it for the money, as the Bible tells us, ahead of time. See, people get, have a misunderstanding sometimes of Judas. They look at him and they say, oh, it's not fair. That was the night before Jesus died. When he was betrayed, Judas betrayed him. At the Last Supper, Satan entered him. Well, that's not fair. Judas couldn't help it. No, Judas had been living this pattern for a long time. Satan didn't do anything that Judas wasn't wide open to doing. Judas made this choice to betray and had been betraying Jesus and ripping Jesus and the other apostles off throughout this ministry. Telltale sign. Gehazi was lacking in compassion. Same with Judas. Gehazi was centered on himself. Same with Judas. That's the second thing. He was centered on himself. Gehazi. We see back in 2 Kings chapter 4 in verse 42 Another situation with Gehazi where a man came from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack and he said, give them to the people that they may eat. And his attendant, this is Gehazi, said, what? Well, I said this before a hundred men? 
See, if someone brings an offering, gives it to Elisha, and Elijah says, or Elisha says, feed the, feed the rest of the people with it first. And God says, like, no, this is for us. This is our food. It's all about me, man. He centered on himself. I, I could be reading into this a little bit, but I really think Gehazi's main concern is his own stomach. But Gehazi was not only lacking in compassion and centered on himself, he was also covetous. And these three things are dangerous, gang. Lacking compassion, centered on the self, and covetous. And Gehazi was all three. He saw the wealth and the wares of Naaman, didn't care that it might reflect badly on the Lord God. What if Naaman found out that he had been ripped off by the servant of the prophet? How would that fare? Gehazi didn't care. He just wanted to get what he could get while the getting was good. In verse 20 of 2 Kings chapter 5, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he bought or brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. And that's what he does. He takes payment. He takes advantage. He takes away the free gift of healing grace that Naaman had received. Now you read the story of Gehazi and you would think that by now he would have learned something from his master Elisha. This doesn't reflect real well on Elisha. You would think that Elisha had had time to teach him something. Well, the reality is that Judas was a follower and a disciple and a servant of Jesus for three full years when he betrayed Jesus. The signs of betrayal did not just pop up at the Last Supper. They'd been there all along. Same with Gehazi. His signs of betrayal, his signs of, of theft here, They've been there all along. By the way, notice the exit of Gehazi from Scripture. Verse 27 says again at the end of the verse, He went out from his presence, a leper, as white as snow. Went out from his presence. I think about the Last Supper when Judas went out from Jesus' presence. John 13.30 says, After receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. One guy white as snow with leprosy, that picture of sin. Another guy as dark as night, also a picture of sin. There comes a point, gang, when we have lacked compassion, when our focus has shifted to ourselves, centering in on ourselves, when we're coveting what other people have, that we may find ourselves on the path of betrayal, like Gehazi and like Judas. Gang, Jude chapter 1 verse 20 says, You beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Be the church. Just be the church. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, Behold now, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. This tells you something, a little background. Elisha has a group of prophets that he's training up. Very cool. A school of prophecy, if you will. And so they're in a location, but it's really become kind of cramped. So they're like, hey, can we go build a new, a new place? Elisha says, sure, let's go do it. Please let us go to the Jordan, verse 2, and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place for ourselves where we may live. So he said, go. And then one said, please be willing to go with your servants. Which apparently they really liked Elisha. They wanted him there. And so he said, go. No, he said, I shall go. Verse 4, so he went with them. And they came down to the Jordan and they cut down trees. But one was felling a beam and the axe head fell into the water. And he cried out and said, alas, my master fruit was borrowed. 
This guy's in seminary, so he has no money. And then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, remember the Jordan is a muddy river, not easy to see, not clear. So when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Now I've seen a Coke float, a root beer float, I've never seen an iron float. Unbelievable. He, sorry. He said, take it up for yourself. And so he put out his hand and took it. This is such a cool miracle. And it's so cool that I'm going to save it for Sunday and we're going to talk more about it. It's not a story about losing your head or getting the axe. It's not a story about how to get ahead either. It's just, we'll talk about it on Sunday. But it is a literal story of how Elisha made iron float. If you've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they talk about how maybe small rocks can float. You can't, but iron floating. We'll talk about this more on Sunday. Verse 8 going on. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel and he counseled... And you might wonder, Rick, why do you say such stupid, stupid puns? And the answer is, I just want to see if you're still with me. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel and he counseled with his servants saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Well, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place for the Aramans are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. And thus he warned him, so he guarded himself there more than once or twice. What's happening? The king of Aram is setting up a camp to surprise Israel and attack. And Elisha keeps telling Jehoram, the king of Israel, this is where they are. Don't go there. And they keep avoiding capture. And they keep avoiding attack. Finally, the king of Aram gets incensed about this. The heart of the king was enraged over this thing. Verse 11. He called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Who's spying? Who among us is is going and telling the king of Israel where we are? He's assuming there's got to be a spy in our midst. No one could know where we are going to attack otherwise. And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. How does this servant know about Elisha, the prophet of Israel? I'm guessing because Naaman talked about him. I'm guessing because the healed Naaman has been spreading the word, which is pretty cool. Well, he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. So Elisha's in Dothan. And the king of Aram finds out about this and he wants to go get Elisha and take him out because Elisha has got the king of Aram's bedroom bugged, (laughs) prophetically speaking. Verse 14, So he sent horses and chariots and a great army there and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, when the attendant of the man of God had arisen early in the morning and gone out, this is not Gehazi, he's gone. There's a new attendant. An army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It's a great verse. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Great story. Elisha's servant now sees what Elisha sees. Horses of fire surrounding the army of Aram. So the Aramans are there thinking they've got the place surrounded when in reality they're surrounded themselves. 
It's one of the places in Scripture that reminds us what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That there is an army out there. That there are unseen battles taking place and unseen warfare going on. That gang, we're surrounded. But here's the good news. Especially if you're feeling surrounded spiritually, God's got them right where He wants them. You may be surrounded by a dark enemy trying to take you down, but they're surrounded by chariots of fire and heavenly horses, truly by the angels of God, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Mm-hmm. I, I like how Elisha responds to his attendant here, because first he gives him the word, and then he gives him prayer. First he says to him, Those who are with us are more than those who are with Him. It is spoke from the mouth of God. Word of God stuff. And then he prays, Oh Lord, open his eyes that he may see. I don't know if he sang it. Open the eyes of his heart, Lord. But suddenly he saw this this great miracle, this great surrounding of these chariots of fire and horses. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul prays the same prayer. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe all that we might know this and truly understand how great God's power is for us in our lives, how massive an army we have surrounding us to protect us and to accomplish in our lives what God wants to accomplish. Paul said in Romans 8.38, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you know what? We can't always see that with our eyes. Not with eyes of flesh. But we can see it with the eyes of faith. What happened the last time Elisha saw a chariot of fire? Elijah was called up. I wonder if when Elisha prayed that his servant's eyes were open, his eyes were open, and Elisha's standing there looking at the chariots of fire, I'm wondering if he's thinking, are they here for me? Is this it? Am I done? Am I going home now? What's great about that, gang, is the prospect of the rapture is always an encouraging thought. Whether he went then or not, and he didn't, the chariots weren't there to pick him up and take him home. But even the sign of the chariots for Elisha would be a reminder of the rapture of Elijah. And as I said on Sunday, and I will continue to say, the thought of the rapture is a very encouraging thought. It's comforting. That's why Paul said, comfort one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Well, going on in verse 18, it says, When they came down to him, that is this army, the army of Aram, Elisha prayed to the Lord, and he said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. And when they had come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of this man that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. So now the army that had him surrounded is itself surrounded in the capital of Israel. 
surrounded by the army of Israel. Verse 20 says, or verse 21, Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? We got them all in the same place. We just take them out right now. And he answered, You shall not kill them. Would you kill those who you, you have taken captive, captive with your sword and with your bow? Now set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Elisha wants this story to go back home. He wants the king of Aram to realize that the king of Israel is not Jehoram, but is God and is mighty. So he prepared a great feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. Now I want you to think about something here. The great miracle that took place here, these chariots of fire and horses, what was the name of the, of the city they surrounded? You look back in your scriptures. Look back a few verses. It's back in verse 13. The name is Dothan. Dothan. Dothan means two wells. Two wells. There are two times in the scripture where we see this city mentioned. The city Dothan. If we dig deep, we can find out that someone else was surrounded at Dothan. As, as Elisha the prophet was surrounded there, so was another man back in Genesis 37. And I'll just read this to you. Or you can turn there, it's up to you. Genesis 37, verse 13. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, I will go. And he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. The man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. You know what happened to Joseph in Dothan. His own brothers surrounded him, grabbed him, threw him into a pit, and ultimately sold him out of that pit into slavery in Egypt. We see Dothan two times, two wells, two stories about Dothan in the scriptures. Why is it that when Elisha needed help, the chariots of fire were there? But when Joseph needed help, the chariots were not there. Well, I submit to you that the chariots were there. That they had Dothan encircled both times. That Joseph was protected in the same way Elisha was protected. Oh, oh, not that the army was driven away. His brothers obviously sold him into slavery. But the chariots of fire were there when Joseph needed them. They protected him. They kept him alive. Whether it's the chariots of fire, I'm using a, a, a picture here, gang, that the Lord was with him in the same way he was with Elisha. And we look at life's circumstance, and if you compare these two, you say, wow, Elisha got protected, saved immediately. Joseph went into slavery. Joseph got sold out of his family by his own brothers. Joseph's life went in the toilet, man. Well, then it got better because the people he was sold to, you know, he kind of did better for a while until Potiphar's wife claimed inappropriate behavior, and then Joseph gets thrown into prison, man. I'm looking at Elisha and going, the chariots of fire. Joseph. Bummer. (laughs) But he raises up through the prison. God gives him grace and favor. And then he comes out of the prison and ends up being over all of Egypt with the exception of Pharaoh himself. Because you see, though the circumstances are different, God is still doing something. That's why comparison in our lives is such a bad idea. 
We look at another believer who just got rescued out of Dothan and we say, I'm sitting here in prison and he got chariots of fire? That is not fair, Lord. And if our eyes are open with the eyes of faith, we would see God is doing something in every single one of our lives. Different things. He's doing what he has purposed ahead of time to do and Joseph knew that. Verse, 50, uh, verse 20 of Genesis chapter 50. Joseph said, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this result and to preserve many people alive. And had that not happened, then the people of Israel, 70 in number, would have died in the famine. But instead, Joseph was over there in Egypt and they were able to come down, Jacob and the family and all, come down to Egypt and be protected where they would grow from 70 people to 3 million people under the grace and provision of God. Both men had a surrounding at Dothan. And in both cases, God was victorious. By the way, Joseph's and Elisha's Dothan stories have similar endings. Joseph, we're told, fed his brothers... He led them along blindly. He didn't reveal to them who he was for a while to determine their purpose before letting them go. Same thing with Elisha. He called for the blindness of the soldiers of Aram. He led them to Samaria and then graciously saw to their feeding and to their release as well. Why, why do things like this tend to repeat themselves in the Bible? Because God is the same God throughout. He is a God who has a global compassion. Cool. He is a God who has his purposes in mind and sees them through. Now some time had passed. And rather than sending his marauders, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, by the way, Ben-Hadad is not necessarily a name, it's a title. So the Ben-Hadad here in the next verse, where are we in the next verse? Verse 24. This Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who gathered his army and went up and besieged Samaria. This is a different guy than the one we had read about before. It's the next generation, Ben-Hadad. And he sends his marauders, putting Samaria completely under siege. Not his marauders, his entire army. And things are beyond desperate. Just listen to this. We're going to finish this out real quickly. Verse 24, it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army, went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria. Behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Not a lot of meat on a donkey's head. Okay. And a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. A cab is about two quarts. So if you needed some dove's dung, you know, that's, that's what you had to pay for it. In other words, things were bad all over. Verse 26, the king of Israel was passing by on the wall. A woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king! And he said, and I would add cynically, if the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? <laughs> no food, no wine here. Help yourself. But the king said to her, verse 28, What's the matter with you? And she answered, Well, this woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat your son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. Yeah. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Can you believe that? When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Sign of repentance and horror. Now he was passing by on the wall. The people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his clothes. So he is in a position of repentance. He's torn his clothes. He's so upset. They see that sackcloth. And then he said, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. 
Oh, Jehoram, you're blaming the wrong guy. It's not Elisha's fault that you're under siege. It's your fault for being a pagan idolater. Well, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the kings, or the elders, sorry, were sitting with him. And the king sent a man from his presence, but before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Elisha said, Do you see how his, his son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, behold, the messenger, we may lose power here, the messenger came down to him and he said, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And Elisha said, Listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. We're going to stop right there for tonight, but we've seen again and again and again the same thing happen. A forewarning, and then the result, exactly as the Lord said, would take place. We read the story, and it's unbelievable. These women are fighting over which one's son they're going to eat. Kill the baby, eat the baby. That's how bad this starvation had become. But listen to this. The Lord warned this would happen. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27. He said, Yet in spite of this, if you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. You will eat. And that's exactly what happened. Why? Because God wanted them to eat the flesh? No. Because God said, this is where your sin is going to land you. This is where it's all going to end up. I've got to read you one. Just because it's so gross, I've got to read you one other thing. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation whose language you do not understand. That would be Babel, a babbling nation, Babylon. But it also is referring to this situation in Aram, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or of the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. It shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And it shall besiege you in all your towns throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you then you shall eat the offspring of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you the man who is refined and very delicate among you shall be hostile toward his brother and toward the wife he cherishes and toward the rest of his children who remain so that he will not give even one of them any of the flesh of his children which he will eat during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in all of your towns. And the refined, brace yourselves, the refined and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground for delicateness and refinement, shall be hostile toward the husband she cherishes, and toward her son and daughter, and toward her afterbirth, which issues from between her legs, it is in scripture, and toward her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of anything else." during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you in your towns. As Samaria is besieged by Aram, as Jerusalem will be besieged by Babylon, as Samaria also will be besieged and taken apart by Assyria, these things 
happened. Women eating the very thing that you can't even imagine secretly because the rest of the family would fight over it. It's so desperately bad to rebel against the Lord. This is where it lands. It's horrific. It's bloody. It's cannibalistic. Graphic, horrific detail given to us 500 years by Moses before it happened in Israel. But it ends up with Elisha prophesying that by the next day, things will have turned around so fast that a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, two measures of barley for a shekel, and the gate of Samaria and gas will be $1.25. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. Lord, thank you for the blessing of just hearing your word and being in it. Father, oh Lord, may we be a people who show your love and compassion to such a degree that lives will not be tragically lost. And that those who would be rebellious against you would see the reality of your love and your desire for them. And would hear the warnings, Lord. Yes, the warnings about judgment. And turn and repent. And may we, Father, be a people who who stand on sound doctrine and teach the truth of the word while extending the hand of grace that you have so graciously given us. Father, help us be the church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.